Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We have a really fascinating topic for you today, but before I get to that, I just want to say supporting the show is the only way it can keep going, and there's a lot of great ways to do that, but one of the best is by picking up some of our customizable merch over at Teespring. There are links in many places over at indefensiveplants.com. You can look at the top and click apparel, or you can check the show notes on every podcast episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Once again, our merch is customizable and there's a style for everyone out there and it really helps keep the show up and running. But today we are talking about plant microbe interactions. And when I say plant microbes, people's heads usually go in one or two categories, either the pathogen world or the mutualistic world. But my guest is Dr. Annie Chung and she is here to talk to us about how those interactions are truly a spectrum and they're often context dependent. And when you think about context, you have to think about how rapidly our world is changing. I don't want to take any of her thunder away. She describes it so eloquently, and as so many academics prove, there are so many more questions to answer, so there's a lot of inspiration in here for burgeoning scientists. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Annie Chung. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Annie Chung, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you today about your research, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Uh, My name's Annie Chung. I am currently an assistant professor at the University of Georgia in both the plant biology and plant pathology departments. Nice. And we work on plant ecology and microbial ecology. Very exciting. And that's an interesting intersection. We're going to unpack a lot of that today. But what brought you to this line of research? I mean, were you a plant kid growing up? Were you more of a microbe kid growing up? Which is kind of a funny thing to say unless you had a good microscope. But uh, where did this all kind of start for you? I mean, I think I think I think it would be fair to say that I was a plant kid growing (laughs) up. I mean, my mother always really liked gardening. Uh, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in New Zealand. Mm. And so I, when I was there, I lived in Christchurch, which is called the Garden City. People are very obsessed with their flowers and gardens there. And so I think that did rub off a little bit. Like I've always been interested in plants and I've always been really just fascinated by mushrooms since I was also pretty young, I suppose. Um, But that didn't really, I guess, develop into an academic interest until much later. I do remember when I was a very young child in New Zealand, um, we were doing this little science project. And I I was like, maybe, I don't know, nine, I want to say I was nine, that Mm. sounds about right. Um, and I did like a little tiny research project on the dead cat mushroom. And I like had read somewhere that, you know, slugs can eat this mushroom and they're fine. And somehow other things eat it and they die. (laughs) And I was really curious about why that was the case. And I had this one teacher at the school I was at in New Zealand who was just like, well, maybe let's just fax bull at the natural (laughs) history museum and ask them. No big deal. remember I got a fax back from whoever it was that was the researcher there who told me about enzymes being able to break down toxins and I've remembered that like little tiny nugget 
of information since then. It was a very memorable experience. So yeah, I think just little things like that was what has been what's brought me to my academic interests now. Nice. I think you might have a new record. I don't think anyone has mentioned faxes yet in their correspondence <laughs> early on. That's awesome. <laughs> I do remember it being a fax. I mean, it was back in the 90s. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember being absolutely enamored with my dad's fax machine because it was like a weird copier slash printer. So yeah, a weird era yeah. that's gone, but <laughs> yeah. nice. And so where did the academic side of this kind of start really forming for you because there's a million different ways you can approach both sides of this and then of course the interactions between these two uh, realms but you know where, where do you start to bite off your chunk of it all yeah I think I mean the academic side of it really started when I was in college and so I moved to the United States for college and I had started um, college thinking I was going to do like neuroscience or something mm. I don't know um I really did not enjoy taking philosophy classes, which was required for that major at Washington University in St. Louis, which is where I was at. And so I decided not to do that anymore. Nice. Um, and just kind of accidentally, really, fell into a summer internship at the Tyson Research Center, which is um, the field station that is run by WashU and got introduced to ecology research there um, that first summer. And I didn't really have any formal, you know, ecological courses under my belt. And so it was a lot of like learning while doing things. Mm. Um, other grad students that were there with postdocs that were there with professors who were there. And it was just a really fun environment, and I really enjoyed learning about the things that they wanted to learn about, and that's kind of what started the academic side of things, yeah. And honestly, when I did start that, kind of diving into plant ecology as a discipline, I was mostly working on um, plant-pollinator interactions. I was really working with microbes or thinking about microbes, um, and that didn't come until my PhD. Hmm. Wow. And now it's a labor of love, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> nice. That's exciting. And yeah, shout out to internships. I mean, a lot of times they tell you what you don't like, but when you find ones that really kind of light the fire in your, your curiosity, then man, that is such an invaluable experience. So to the youth listening, do some internships. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I would never have known that this was a career that was possible to pursue or that these were the types of science that people did if I hadn't just like randomly decided not to skip calculus one day and found a flyer and went to the info session. <laughs> uh, I love those little insights. Yeah. Good so for you. It's really a very kind of random occurrence that set me down this path. Nice. But yeah, now you're wonderfully situated in this intersection between two immensely important types of life. I mean, the microbial community is vast and not a single unit, uh, and, and plants are a little bit easier to group, but still a vast world there. But the way they interact, I mean, a lot of people will be familiar with pathogens, especially if you garden. And then, you know, there's the introduction to mycorrhizae and marzobia, you know, the mutualists. But there's this whole spectrum in between. And what's fascinating about your work is it really kind of uh, looks at how those two things come together in various ways and, and 
really manifests in what we see when we go out into, say, a prairie or a forest, that sort of stuff. And to me, that is amazing to really unpack for people that don't spend every day doing this sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that is what I love most about it is that these interactions do really underpin everything we see um, around us, especially when we think about plant communities, think about plants as primary producers and how they form the bottom of that pyramid. Um, and so, yeah, the things that we think about really do span that spectrum between a, kind of a more pathogenic interaction between plants and microbes to very positive interactions between plants and microbes. What's really cool about them is that even for the exact same plant host and microbe combination, depending on the context, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the environment, the, let's say the pH of the soil, the, um, humidity, the water availability, um, or nutrient availability, it can, even that one single interaction can span the whole spectrum between pathogenic and mutualistic, which is, which makes it really fun to study and also really difficult. (laughs) Right. Talk about noisy ecological data. I'm sure you're like, wait, we didn't measure the one variable we needed to. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It doesn't help that you can't see them. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good place to kind of start with this is the approach. Right. And that's another fascinating thing is someone that's kind of gone through it. And a lot of people listening will be familiar with, you know, lab work or you know, field work in that sort of realm. But for work like yours, I would imagine it's kind of has to be 50 50. You have to go out into the world to kind of understand this. Sometimes you're working in a greenhouse and then many other times because half of what you're looking at is invisible to the naked eye, unless it's really abundant, you got to be in a lab. Yeah, um, it is. We do very much divide our time and work um, between all of these different places that you just mentioned. You know, in the summer, for example, which is when we're at now, we're starting to gear up thinking about doing field work, um, both in Georgia and also in New Mexico. And some members of my lab are going to Arizona. Um, And we try to ground a lot of our work in the field where things are actually happening and have it be pretty realistic and do experiments in the field when we can. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of times you can't control Hmm. probial things in, in the field, right? It's very hard to have, let's say, sterile technique in the field. Um, and so that means that sometimes we do experiments in more controlled environments, such as in growth chambers or greenhouses. And we also often, in order to, um, kind of open up the black box, as people say, of microbial components, um, you have to employ some sort of molecular or culture-based technique Mm. to figure out who's there. Yeah. That's intense, though, especially when it comes to sort of the learning curve and of, uh, you know, you're you're seasoned at this point, you're a professor, you're in it. But like the effort to try to learn techniques, let alone useful techniques in all different aspects of that work from field uh, setups to greenhouse setups to laboratory techniques. I mean, that is no small task. So shout out to you and everyone you collaborate with and everyone in your lab for just putting in the effort needed to really get to a point where all of those techniques are useful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't say I'm seasoned point. It hasn't been all that, <laughs> to be quite honest. 
Because then the thing with especially molecular based techniques, right, is that they advance so quickly. Mm. So you can very familiar with one thing and that's the thing that you've done and for the past three years and then every day there's some new paper being published there's new techniques being developed and it's very very easy to fall behind comes to keeping on top of that sort of thing um and honestly i think yeah my for sure deserve a lot of credit and be willing to tackle all of these different approaches and ways of thinking and develop all of these skills in order to figure out their research questions. Nice. And so speaking of techniques and the challenges involved, you kind of hinted at it there in this idea that, you know, what is capable in the field isn't necessarily as easy as something you can, where you have the controls of a greenhouse or a lab type experiment. And so for the types of interactions that you study, I know part of your work looks at how much inference can you gain when you are in a greenhouse setting versus in a natural setting? And when you're thinking about the the, the, the availability of potential interactions, I'm sure there's there's sort of a scale of how well you can kind of assess that in, in a controlled setting versus in the field, right? Yeah, for sure, especially when it comes to microbes. Like we I mentioned earlier, the interactions are hugely context dependent and the field context is hugely different. Um, the greenhouse context, for example, and I so one of the studies that I have done previously as a part of my dissertation is in, um, I worked in this um, grassland, desert grassland ecosystem um, in the Chihuahuan Desert in New Mexico. And I conducted a series of field and greenhouse-based experiments um, using the same species of grass and kind of sampling from the same locations um, for the microbial community, both to do direct experiments in the field, but also to use those soils to inoculate plants in the greenhouse. Uh, and then what we then did was at the end of all of these different experiments that I did, um, we sequenced the plant roots, both from the field where we had experimental plants, we had naturally occurring plants, also from the greenhouse, those plants that grew for, you know, 10 months in the greenhouse inoculated with field microbes and then we just kind of compared what all actually got in there into the roots of these presumably same species of plants and it turns out it's very different hmm. um you do find a strong core of that microbiome you, and just also as a caveat we only looked at fungi we did not look at bacteria or other microbes um look at the fungal microbiome that we found across all of these different conditions in the roots of the plants, um, you, you can very easily tell the signal of whether these plants were grown in the greenhouse versus in the field versus um, in an experiment or not. Um, and so it does kind of point to some of the limitations that we do have to deal with. Um, there is a trade-off that you make right. when you go to the greenhouse where there are the benefits of having their more controlled environments, easy to access plants, more things you can do with them. But then the trade-off is reality, right? Um, you are facing some reality. And when it comes to the microbiome, you will get a substantially different microbiome than the same plants would out in the field, even if you start off with field soils. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I I know people that are just doing the fungal side of things and have a lot of difficulties with certain species and certain taxonomic groups than others in the, the, the culturing aspects. So I, 
I feel for you there. Um, but in a big way, it's also fascinating to try even to look at that. Like, why? Why are some of these easier to do than others? Why do these occur in some areas like more frequently? Or these are the ones that we can say something about and not these? You know, that's to me interesting too. And what what isn't and why isn't it capable uh, in in certain conditions? Why do those trade offs even exist in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a question that a lot of people are interested in trivial ecology um, and the kind of the concept you're hinting at there is the concept of community assembly, mm. which is thing that community ecologists think about from, you know, anything from microbes to plants to animals to birds to insects, anything, right? Um, and there are kind of major groups of mechanisms that underlie community assembly that people think about and are interested in. Some of these are stochastic or um, you might say random. So things that don't necessarily have anything to do with um, the conditions or the species involved and how they're biologically different from each other, right? It could just be pure chance that this one group got there first and now it has an advantage. And if that microbe had not gotten there first purely by chance or some sort of dispersal mechanism, then the community would look very different. That's something um, that uh, some of my students in my lab are really interested in. There's a lot of great theory about that, right? And then there are other, um, what I guess mechanisms that people think of as filters perhaps. Mm. Once um, community assembly, things, for example, abiotic filters are things like the abiotic conditions of the environment that decide what species get to be there and thrive and what species don't based on their physiological tolerances. And then the biotic filters people think about as interactions between the taxa that are present, such as competition or mutualisms or um, predation or pathogenic impacts that also help determine um, whether certain things get to exist where they are, right? So it's all of these different forces together shape a community, and that happens at the macro scale as well as at the micro scale. <sighs> uh, Multidimensional statistical analyses. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this idea of community assembly being so wild in terms of how many different variables can factor in, how different conditions and, and how much randomness can factor in, you start to wonder, like, you know, a lot of people will fall back on this idea, like, we can define a community. This is this kind of hardwood community. This is this kind of community of grassland. And you go, well, the players are always changing. There are patterns that tend to repeat themselves, but the community concept is useful only for categorizing. When it comes to assembly, I mean, it is... Sometimes the Wild West and sometimes it's, you know, the site condition. Sometimes it's 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 a really fascinating world, but it is also can be a, a really frustrating world, I'd imagine, from a research perspective, depending on the, the mood that day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that can definitely be true. And I think what it does, what does help is thinking about it, not as like a yes or no question, but a more of this and less of this sort of question. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, for example, you know, if you go into like a desert environment um, as compared to, let's say, you know, a prairie in the Midwest, right? Um, some might hypothesize that in a very environmentally stressful environment, such as the desert, abiotic filters are going to play a much larger role in determining um, community assembly compared to biotic filters. 
Um, whereas it might be the other way around in a more kind of not as stressful environment, such as a prairie, where you might um, hypothesize that competition among the different species might be the most important thing that drives the outcome of community assembly there. Yeah, totally. And then to add this sort of spectrum of potential behaviors where one organism can act as a pathogen under X condition, but a mutualist under Y, I mean, even there, I think we want to throw things into a bin like, oh, it's good. It's always good. So more of it's better. But let's talk a little bit more about how something can go from maladaptive to really helpful uh, under different conditions. I mean, in the realm of where you're studying, what does that look like? I mean, is it, it you, do you see it more in sort of these harsher desert environments or in prairies or is it, you know, habitat related? Or is it, let's bake that apart a little bit, I guess, is where I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there there's kind of uh, several axes. I think people think about it in terms of the context People think about resource-related context versus non-resource-related context. Um, you kind of alluded to, let's say, stress as being a part of it, which is interesting because there is a very well um, big hypothesis in ecology called the stress gradient hypothesis. I'm sure maybe one or two of your previous um, interviewees might have mentioned this before, um, maybe Eva Megan, I, she certainly thinks a little, thinks about that. Um, and so the hypothesis is that essentially interactions should be, or if this hypothesis were true, interactions among individuals and taxa should be more facilitative in more stressful environments and more antagonistic in less stressful environments. Um, whether that is true, um, I feel like depends, right? There have been some meta-analyses try to, you know, look through all of the different studies that have been done um, to figure out if there is kind of this hypothesis that we can apply across different ecosystems. I think one of the difficulties of that is context can be really difficult to define, right? Um, your context can be something that is not resource-based, such as temperature, mm -hmm. where um, what that means is that, you know, you could go from a cold to hot gradient, right? And the fact that an animal or a species or a plant is there does not change the availability of hot or cold temperatures. It's gonna be hot or cold, regardless of who's there, right? But a lot of the contexts that people think about are resource-based. So for example, a water availability gradient, right? Um, it could go from a very mesic environment to very dry environment. However, the water availability is also dependent on what species are there, how many of them there are, how much water they uptake, right? And so that makes it a little bit trickier to figure out the in, um, relationship between context and interaction outcomes. One very kind of more well-known example in the plant micro world of context-dependent interaction outcomes is between um, plants and arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, AMF. So these are a group of fungal taxa that form generally we think of as mutualistic interactions with plants. They are obligate symbionts. So AMF cannot um, exist kind of freely, live freely inside of a host plant. 
um, they must have a host in order to complete their life cycle, right? Um, and so generally we think about AMF as being very mutualistic. However, a lot of classical work that's been done um, have demonstrated that the mutualistic interaction between an AMF and a plant is resource-based, right? The exchange that we normally think of is that the plant is the provider of photosynthate or carbon-derived compounds to the fungus, and the fungus is to forage and um, increase phosphorus and some also nitrogen um, availability to the plant. So, you know, trades phosphorus and nitrogen for carbon is kind of the the kind of cartoon version of what people think of this interaction, right? Um, and there's been a lot of really fascinating work by um, various groups that show that this interaction changes when, for example, let's say phosphorus is super abundant and easily available for the plants, right? In this case, the there's very little, well, I wouldn't say very little, but there's much less benefit of the fungus to the plant because phosphorus is already available. The plant doesn't need the fungus to like scavenge for that extra phosphorus. But if the fungus is there, the plant's still, you know, providing carbon. So it kind of acts more as a parasitic interaction compared to a normally mutualistic one. Um, and so that's kind of more one of the more well-known and frequently demonstrated versions of context-dependent interaction outcomes when it comes to plant microbe interactions. And then you multiply that across umpteen unmeasurable levels of life and, and potential interactions. And I, sure. yeah, I could see why there's still a lot of debate, a lot of hypotheses that need testing, and, and really, I'm guessing, way more data to support or not support many of them. Yeah, and I think it is helpful that at least the field has very much embraced this context dependence as an essential part of these interactions and how we think about them. Um, I think that's really helpful instead of having to throw everything in a bin all the time, even though those bins are quite helpful. Right. Um, yeah. And so is that a reason why a lot of your work takes you to harsher environments, so to speak, like deserts, is because there's that sort of finer margin or is it sort of just easier to study things kind of like it's easier to study geology out west because geology is at the surface (laughs) that's an interesting question i mean honestly for me it was a little bit more just happenstance than anything planned quite honestly like i started my phd at rice in houston and then my lab moved to new mexico and i moved to the lab and i was there and there was a um there was a long-term ecological research site, the Savieta LTER, which is wonderful, and it's only like an hour and a half away from town. And it had just so many resources and such an amazing and beautiful ecosystem. And so that's kind of where I ended up. But having said that, it does lend itself to some of the questions that I'm interested in, um, which is how kind of plant microbe interactions alter the way plants compete and coexist with each other. Um, And the reason for that is because the plant communities out there um, are very species poor for the most part. You get like a couple of species that kind of really dominate the landscape and then a little bunch of rare ones that, you know, pop up here and there and through time and space. Mm. And so what that means is that I can easily abstract a community down to just like two species and do experiments with just two species 
um, and be able to say a whole lot of how this entire ecosystem functions. Right. And I can't really do that. It would be a lot harder to do that in other ecosystems, for example, in a tropical rainforest where it is incredibly species rich and you would have to incorporate a lot larger number of species and much, much bigger experiments and efforts to be able to say anything meaningful about the system. So in that sense, it was kind of nice. (laughs) (laughs) Some just perfectly handed over experimental designs by nature. (laughs) I mean, it was a little bit that way because like the two grass species that I worked on a lot when I was in New Mexico um, were blue and black grandma and they just happened to be congeners, which is like a really interesting context in which to ask questions about coexistence and so that worked out really well (laughs) yeah that's that's really cool actually i love that sort of uh yeah congener style experiments because then you get into all these ideas about evolution and predisposition and then you know what is the context of why this one might be different kind of thing but and thinking about this idea of coexistence, that's another area where people really right now, especially want to shoehorn it into, nah, nature's getting along, they're sharing, it's all about caring for each other, and it's never that simple, right? And so when it comes to coexistence and where microbes start to play in this this whole spectrum of, of possible interactions that even just different plants can have with each other, how can a microbe or a suite of microbes change the interactions between two plant species. I mean, I'm I'm guessing there's a hint of resource availability there, but context and all the other stuff. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the way that I've chosen to tackle this question is really to black box the microbes for now. Right. And so we take advantage of the fact that um, host microbiomes are usually host specific. Right. So if you were to compare the root microbiome of one species of plant versus the another species of plant, they are usually different and different in ways that are replicable and um, durable. And that is because different species have different biochemicals, different immune like responses um, that then shape the microbiome that they interact with, right? And so one way that we think about how plant microbe interactions affect plant competition and coexistence is that there has been this observation that plants actually tend to accumulate species-specific microbiota that are comparatively more harmful to them than otherwise. Um, and that gets at the kind of concept of pathogen accumulation. It um, is reflected in our kind of, let's say, agricultural knowledge of crop rotation. Mm. We know that we need to do crop rotations, not just because, let's say, one crop uses up one suite of nutrients one way, and you know you use another crop, and they use another type of suite of combinations of nutrients, but also because monocultures tend to accumulate specific pathogens that do not necessarily target another host species, right? Um, So kind of bringing that back into more natural context, generally have plants and plants generally, um, not always, but generally, um, tend to accumulate species-specific microbiota in their soils that are 
relatively more harmful to them compared to that of another species. Hmm. And so with that starting point, that gives us a way to think about plant microbe interactions in a way that affects negative density or frequency dependence, right? Um, where you can think of, let's say you have two species that are two plant species that are competing with each other, um, as what species a increases in relative frequency, it's specific pathogens might also increase in relative frequency, right? Which then forms a self-limiting mechanism that allow that basically keeps it from, um, out competing species B. And species B has the same self-limiting mechanism, and that's one way that plant-microbe interactions could help plants exist. Um, but it is very rooted in this sort of kind of um, negative, what we call negative plant soil feedbacks. Mm. We'll term for it. And so negative plant soil feedbacks are things that people have documented across a lot of different communities with different species of plants. And so that was kind of my starting point in trying to understand whether that was a mechanism that existed in the ecosystem with the plant species that I interacted, that I was interested in understanding. Um, And kind of long story short, we found that, yes, it did play a role, but maybe not as big a role as we thought it did. So that's the short story. <laughs> See, that's really cool, though. And it's it's going in with this sort of background knowledge and, and sort of a, a, a bias in the literature. I'm not saying necessarily a negative bias in the literature, but a, a viewpoint. But I love that, too, because it still kind of harkens back to those ecology one-on-one days when you learn about sort of the snowshoe hare and the lynx example of where the resource becomes abundant, then the predator becomes abundant. It, it, it really comes back to that. And I love that like we really are kind of in this scalable fractal universe where, you know, a lot of patterns do repeat themselves because life has to find a way. And there's only so many ways that life can find a way that works. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, it, this, like, yeah, that whole theory that I was just talking about does build upon that, like, very basic Locke Volterra type dynamic, which is the kind of snowshoe here and the length thing that you were just talking about. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you brought that up. That's exactly what it was. Nice. And, and kudos for remembering the name of it. I completely forgot. <laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> well, I about it all the time, so I kind of can't forget. <laughs> And, and it's also kind of fascinating in its own way, although I'm sure it's also frustrating uh, at times, but to, to know that it's it's playing a role, but not a massive role. And it goes back to context is like, what else is going on that we're not measuring? And, and you mentioned having to black box the microbes and, and, you know, you can only understand in your lifetime a subset of the microbial community, right? I mean, the, the possible microbe interactions must be just insanely high. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I think being able to kind of deconstruct that black box is something that a lot of people are working on right now and is something that we're all trying to do in different ways. Um, there are several ways you can think about, you know, breaking down the complexity of the of microbial community. Um, some people think about traits. Mm microbial traits and microbial functional groups as one way to break down the complexity. Um, People think about using things like network analyses to figure out co-occurrence networks. So like how how often do certain microbes co-occur with each other, whether that is perhaps suggestive of interaction 
from the microbes um, and also that sometimes helps us identify um, certain what people call hub taxa in these networks. So species that may perhaps just like um, in a macro kind of community scale, we think of as keystone species or foundation species that um, are really important to that community and form a lot of links. And perhaps there are these kind of very peripheral species where we might lose a bunch of them and the entire function of that community might not change all that much. Wow. Um, so those wow. are a couple of the different ways that people are starting to tackle mm. that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that again, I'm sorry if this is not at all in the realm of where your mind is at most of the time, but that brings into the question of like microbial community assembly. And I, I'm fairly certain at least most listeners have an idea of how plants get around on the landscape, right? Seeds can move, they blow around, birds can take them, mammals can take them. How the heck are microbials communities getting around? I mean, spores, cysts, uh, those words that come up a lot and like, how do you go from a place that's like, you know, a, a brownfield in the middle of an urban center and, and now it's ripe for colonization? How are they getting there? Yeah, well, microbial dispersal um, is tricky to measure, <laughs> right? Measuring microbial dispersal is a very difficult thing. Um, there used to be this, I don't know if you'd call it a hypothesis, this thing that people would talk about a lot in microbial ecology uh, which is uh, everything is everywhere and the environment selects. <laughs> and so that gets at this assumption that we used to have that because microbes are so tiny and they can probably just get everywhere, you know, you just blow a little bit of dust across, you know, blow it across continents and they should be able to get everywhere they want to. And the reason why they don't necessarily thrive everywhere is because the environment selects for which ones can thrive, right? Um, so that was the assumption for quite a long time, but now we know that that's not the case. Not microbial dispersal is not universal. It, they can't be everywhere all the time. Um, and it really depends on kind of their dispersal structures, right? So um, we talked about our vascular mycorrhizal fungi before as an example. Um, so I can just talk about that again. So the these are fungi, for example, that have kind of larger spores than, you know, you might um, expect for soil dwelling fungi. So they have relatively large spores. And these spores, because they're in the soil, they don't necessarily always get blown up to the air um, or get kicked up as dust. And even if they do get kicked up as dust, they might not be carried in the wind for that long mm. of a distance. And so um, kind of emerging studies in what we call the field of microbial biogeography mm. has started to demonstrate that, you know, there, there, is, there are patterns to the distributions of microbes and it's not just because the environment selects, but it is also because that they can be geographically limited. Wow. wow. Yeah. That is a whole new field, I'm sure, of, of just tons of questions to ask there. Cool stuff. Um, we don't really do a whole lot with that. Um, but yeah, I, I know many other people who've done really exciting work. Nice. In that field. Mm hmm. And so with all of this in mind, I mean, a lot of this comes back down to context and it depends. I mean, that's something you'll hear time and time again. But, you know, when you think about your work and the way you're approaching these questions, 
context is changing a lot and and that comes from a lot of different methods of change that could be as simple as you know humans disturb everywhere they go they're plowing fields they're setting up sub developments to we're pumping so much greenhouse gases into our atmosphere that now the entire climate is changing and so obviously as many different outcomes as can possibly be imagined, but I'm sure that has to factor into a lot of your research is, is just what's going to happen in an, a, a future defined by uncertainty and defined by rapid changes. Yeah, I'm definitely a lot of the projects that we are focused on in the lab right now have something to do with climate change mm. or disturbance or, you know, broadly termed global change in some way. Um, for example, our newest New Mexico project um, that is funded by the National Science Foundation, is looking at how elevated levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere might change the interactions between these plants and microbes. Um, and the mechanism that we're hypothesizing is that um, a lot of the ways that plants either communicate with or recruit via resources, microbes, is by um, their root exudates. So they are exuding kind of usually small, low molecular weight compounds into the soil, which then gets picked up by microbes either as signals or as resources that they gobble up. Um, and all of that requires carbon from the plant. Um, it is invested in the form of carbon, which ultimately comes from photosynthesis, which then ultimately comes from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, in our system that we are in, in New Mexico, um, we've got this kind of shift from a shrubland ecosystem to a grassland ecosystem. In many dryland areas where you have this kind of shrub-grass interaction, a lot of the times the shrubs are C3 um, plants, whereas the grasses are C4 plants. Right. And so that suggests that they may, based on their different um, strategies, utilize that extra carbon dioxide in the air differently and be able to turn that into root exudates below ground very differently and thus impact microbes differently. And so that is one thing that we are currently looking at um, in a growth chamber setting where we can actually manipulate the amount of carbon dioxide in the air and to see how that affects the plants, how the microbes, and how that affects the interaction between them. Wow. Yeah, I mean, when you kind of break it down to the carbon economy, you start to even uh, see those kind of breakouts as like plants are doing it differently in different places. And, and that, to me, is a really cool biological sort of setup to, to work from. So that's really neat. And obviously, that is uh, uh, so many different questions and time <laughs> need to be devoted to really start to suss that out. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we also think about disturbance and, you know, um, well, not specifically nitrogen deposition, but just like over fertilization. We also one of my students is thinking about um, changes in fire regimes and how that impacts um, microbe interactions. Um, one of my students is thinking about temperature. And we're also involved in some efforts to kind of on the solution side of things. Um, figure out whether we can harness the interaction between plants and microbes to help fuel feedstock plants. So there's all sorts of stuff that's kind of surrounding that um, context of change, as you were talking about before. Yeah, and I'm happy you went there because really, you know, from a theoretical perspective, this is already fascinating. 
from a pragmatic sort of ecological perspective, this is fascinating. But as you just kind of hinted at, this sort of stuff touches all aspects of the biosphere and really affects us, whether we realize it or not. And, you know, plants are easy to see, microbes are not. And then, you know, having to consider the way they interact, this is this is deep stuff that we really do need to start thinking about in big ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially in the context of climate solutions, I think a lot of people are interested in plant microbe interactions and soil microbes in particular. Um, you know, one part of the ecosphere that a lot of people are interested in figuring out in terms of carbon storage is soil carbon storage mm. and um, microbial carbon use efficiency plays a huge role in the amount of carbon that can be stored in the soil um, and that so that plays a really um, role in our ability to be able to predict kind of out into the future how much carbon can we expect certain to store below ground and help us combat all of these, all of this extra carbon dioxide that we're emitting um, into the atmosphere. Wow. Yeah. Big stuff. Big questions. But, uh, you know, it's early days. So let's just keep charging forward, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's exciting that, the, you know, there's just there's a lot of people working on this. I mean, I work very specifically on my little, you know, little chunk of research looking at thinking about plant communities and thinking about microbial community assembly and plant micro interactions but then there are people who are kind of taking the broader view and thinking about things like biogeochemical cycling and ecosystem exchange and carbon carbon budgets right and so it takes all of us kind of figuring out little bits of the puzzle together to try to you know hopefully at some point push our entire envelope of knowledge forward. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it happens in fits and spurts just like the actual science does, and that's what's amazing, but, you know, people also need to learn that it, it takes time and patience and data, <laughs> lots and lots of data. Yeah. Yeah, and also, sometimes we get it wrong, and then we figure it out, and we try again. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's the key, is correcting. Science always aims to correct itself, not uh, stick a stick in the mud for, well, at least not for long periods of time, I hope, but yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of self-correction going on in the science world. Nice. And so with that in mind, if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work and learn a little bit more about this world and then maybe even use your work to expand into all of the different spheres of microbial and plant interactions, where do you recommend they go looking? How do they find out more about what you and your lab are doing? Um, well, if, if you're specifically interested in what me and my lab are doing, we do have a lab website. It's got all of our research projects on there. Um, so that's kind of a great place to start. Um, and then kind of more broadly, dang, I don't know if there's like a one-stop shop for, That's fair. <laughs> out there. um, but yeah, I would say, um, some of the interesting, more kind of public facing projects that have started recently are projects such as spun, which I am having a really hard time remembering no worries. stands for. It's SPUN um, and various kind of efforts. And so, for example, the Earth Microbiome Project, things like those big kind of umbrella projects where they do a lot more kind of public facing stuff where they um, focus on 
explaining the vast biodiversity that exists when it comes to um, microbial diversity. Excellent. Well, I will spare everyone the trouble of trying to remember to write that down, and I will put links in the show notes as always. But Dr. Chung, this is amazing. You're doing incredibly fascinating and important work, so thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it and keep it up. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Yeah, and um, I'm always happy to answer questions via email or get in touch. Um, you have if you want to further the conversation. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for your time and thank you for telling us all about it. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a great point. Thank you. All right. Cheers. All right. How cool and fascinating is that? There is so much in that conversation to try to bite off and try to understand. And as she mentioned, she's just doing her chunk of it. There is a wide world out there of plant microbe interactions, and there's a multitude of ways of studying it. I thank Dr. Chung for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I hope you will go check out the links I put in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you can learn so much more about everything we talked about today. While you're there, consider supporting the show. There's a lot of different links and how to do that. You can pick up a copy of my book. You can pick up some of our customizable merch or some stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Over there, you'll find a lot of great kickbacks like producer credits. For instance, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast, Jamie. Jamie signed up at the producer credit level, so they're doing the maximum each month that they can to keep the show up and running. So thank you to Jamie, and thank you to everyone who supports this show. I couldn't be doing it without you. But that is it for this week. As always, thank you for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.